Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Dr. Benjamin Laird. Um, Dr. Laird is the author of the new book, Creating the Canon with Ivy Press. Um, and in this work, Dr. Laird goes through many aspects of how the scripture was, uh, well, especially the New Testament was written, um, how it circulated, and then ultimately how we come to think of it as the canon or as the Bible. Um, so Dr. Laird is a professor uh, at Liberty University uh, and, and really enjoyed getting to talk with him a little bit about this book. Um, I also have been doing some studies on this at my church for our um, our Sunday morning um, Sunday school, and so I may be rec releasing some of my own conversations uh, that I basically um, cover a lot of the stuff that Dr. Laird covers in his book, so it's a sort of an extended format uh, from this book, uh, but that will only be available to patrons. Uh, so if you uh, find us on Patreon, we are at a history of Christian theology. Uh, well, we are at patreon.com slash ahoct, a history of Christian theology. Um, and if you become a member on Patreon, we're going to start um, offering some different things to our members there, including access to recordings of other uh, teaching that I've done and even some conversations between Tom, Trevor, and I. Um, so uh, on this uh, podcast, we will link um, our Patreon. You can also find it on our Facebook um, and on our website. So uh, do look out for that. And if you'd like some more content uh, related to the kind of stuff that we put out on the podcast, um, I, I highly recommend becoming a Patreon supporter. Um, I will have some more episodes coming out uh, later uh, from Jacob Wright and uh, from Ben Ho uh, uh, and Andrew Hofer. Um, so we kind of a lot coming up. Sorry for the delay. Um, it's been kind of a crazy semester. So without further ado, um, here is my conversation with Benjamin Laird. So today on History of Christian Theology, I have with me uh, Dr. Benjamin Laird, uh, and Dr. Laird is uh, Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Liberty University. Um, he has also recently written Creating the Canon, uh, Composition, Controversy, and the Authority of the New Testament, um, and that will be the topic of our conversation today. This is out with Ivy, Pre Ivy Press, um, and so I appreciate uh, IVP um, providing me a copy of the book, uh, which I found uh, very illuminating, uh, uh, very helpful, in some ways uh, penetrating um, in its the questions that it asks, um, and also uh, at the same time a good uh, overview of some of the issues involved in trying to think through what does it mean uh, to talk about the New Testament? Where does this come from? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so thank you for coming on, uh, Ben, Dr. Laird. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, so uh, if you if you wouldn't mind, we'll just start kind of with the sort of general topic. So if you tell us a, a little bit about the composition of uh, and uh, circulation of the New Testament writings, um, what what complications does this bring to the question um, of of the inspiration of the original autographs? Yeah, those are a couple of really good questions there. So there's more of a, I guess you could say a, a process question, right? How did the writings actually get composed? How were they composed? And then also, how does that relate theologically to the idea of inspiration? So I'll try to quickly address both of those. I've always been fascinated by the historical questions. I uh -huh. remember as a grad student, a doctoral student, read a lot of folks like uh, Harry Gamble and Larry Hurtado and E. Randolph Richards and really just became fascinated by the concept of writing in the first century. And a lot of dissertations have been written on this subject, but I just found it interesting that writings were often composed in very different ways than we might suspect. And whenever I bring up the subject of the New Testament can, I think uh, what I find is that a lot of people have the idea that maybe letter writing was similar to the way it is today, just maybe slower, more archaic as far as the mechanisms that were used, the instruments that were used. But generally an isolated uh, enterprise, right? Individual kind of uh, activity uh, where someone like Paul is going to sit at his desk and compose something in solitude and then, you know, he's going to send it out. So it may have took a long time to get that letter to where it needed to go, but writing is basically the same as it was, uh, you know, 2000 years ago today as today. So what I've actually learned and what I think we can find in history is that letter writing was actually a pretty complex uh, enterprise activity. And I say complex because it wasn't always, sometimes it was, but in many cases, it wasn't the isolated activity that we might think. 
So there were many, many people involved. And in the first couple chapters, I get into this. Uh, there are books that that get into this in much more detail, but I just wanted to provide readers with a broad survey of how letters were written, how gospels were likely composed, and uh, focus on, in one of the chapters there at the beginning of the book, on all the individuals that could have had a role in this, uh, in this process. And so I talk, for example, about the different sources that could have been used, and many people that we don't even know, you know, we don't even know their names, uh, but they would have played a role in providing the authors of the New Testament with information uh, that would have been used in their works. Uh, so the works of the New Testament are what scholars often refer to as occasional in nature. They're writing to address specific concerns, specific situations, to address maybe theological misunderstandings, but they're going to need to know what is a concern or a problem among their readers. And so they're going to need information. So that may come from maybe there's written text, like in the gospel accounts, maybe they're familiar with earlier writings, or maybe they're in contact with their associates who have actually traveled to a location and they visited there and ministered to the, the, the uh, locals. And those individuals have passed on their concerns and uh, somebody will return, someone like Titus or Timothy might return to Paul with a report and uh, tell Paul, you know, Paul, we actually need to deal with this situation. And they're really confused about spiritual gifts or the Lord's Supper, or I've watched their worship services and I noticed that they completely misunderstand this subject or how to do this or that, or, you know, the point of this or that. And uh, so Paul then might address it uh, as well. And there could be also eyewitnesses, and that would be more of the case with uh, narrative. So Gospels and Acts, you're going to need a source of information for uh, the miracle accounts or Jesus teaching or uh, some event that is described. And so certain individuals, many individuals, in fact, likely served as informants or uh, sources uh, for the gospel writers and even for someone like Paul. So that's just the first step. And then we're going to yeah. go on to the actual composition and what we know is that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes writers would make use of a personal secretary to compose their works. And we know that this actually took place in the uh, New Testament writings because we actually have explicit reference to at least one, and that would be Tercis, who identifies himself by name at the end of Romans. Mm -hmm. And so we often know, well, we, we can observe in many cases that uh, a secretary would have been used. Paul would have dictated uh, the content of a writing to him, and that individual would have composed the text, and uh, eventually that would have been approved by the author. So someone like Paul isn't just going to dictate the text, and then, uh, you know, Terse is going to run with it and craft it any way he feels led to, and then, uh, you know, put his own kind of uh, 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 twist on it and then send it off. It's going to be approved and authenticated by Paul at the end of that. Uh, but it's it's really fascinating to learn how uh, secretaries functioned. Uh, uh, the Oxyrhynchus letters, for example, that have been uh, discovered over the last century and a half, and a lot of them indicate that secretaries were used uh, not just for literary compositions, you know, sophisticated works like we have with Paul or the Gospels, but everyday letters uh, were often they often use secretaries to compose those as well. So that's another individual who may have served in in that capacity. We have letter writers. Uh, we have informants, we have secretaries. Oftentimes you would have letter carriers as well, right? So you can't just send an email and hit send and, or a text message and send it instantly and uh, arrive at the place uh, through electronic means. Instead, letters had to be delivered, works had to be disseminated. And so all that took place through letter carriers. And there's been a lot of activity in the last uh, couple decades just discussing the function of letter carriers as well. Then once the writing gets to where it needs to go, uh, we often have we also have the issue of uh, circulating those works, and so we're going to have many people who serve as copyist of the writings, and so that's a that's a lot of different people, right? That all played some kind of role in the the process, the literary process here. When we go from just what we might call the research phase or the planning phase, and then all the way to the transmission of the text after it arrived where uh, it was intended to go. So a lot yeah. of different people played a role. So I would say that was that that's something that is often overlooked. We just forget oftentimes how many people were involved in this process. It wasn't just an individual affair, like I said, but it was more of a team effort, especially in the case of, I would say, Paul's ministry there. And yeah. to kind of segue then to your question about inspiration, my understanding, and there's different perspectives on this, but my understanding is that 
we can affirm inspiration. I think we have a legitimate reason to affirm inspiration. I think it's a crucial doctrine. But I would say inspiration does not preclude the notion that the authors used the conventions of their day to yeah. produce writing. So we shouldn't assume that because, say, Romans was uh, inspired by God, that somehow the process, the compositional process was different. Yeah. I think that uh, Paul and the other authors, the gospel authors, the other authors of the epistles, they would have used the standard means of uh, book production and letter writing, the, the standard conventions that we know about in the first century, they they would have followed those as well. Yeah. And, uh, so I would say that uh, we have a very human process, but I do believe that the content of the work was, was indeed inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit as we read in scripture and, is, was, and, and uh, also was affirmed by the early church as well. So that's kind of a broad overview of the process. And then also I kind of threw out the idea of inspiration there and, uh, and uh, made the case that I think that uh, inspiration is not at all in conflict with this idea that they used uh, human means. So, yeah, well that, yeah. there And, and I realize now looking back at that question, <laughs> there's, there's a lot in there. That's like, tell me a little bit about your book yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, is essentially what I just did. So, uh, well, and one thing that you mentioned at the beginning that, it, you know, is sort of interesting. And, and I mentioned this before, uh, as we were kind of chatting before I started recording is that we kind of have, uh, you know, sort of two different elements. When we think about scripture, uh, we have sort of the, the, we might say the more explicitly theological considerations, um, of like, okay, what does it mean to be say inspired? What would it mean for, God to inspire authors or communities or all of these things to bring the scriptural text uh, into the world as we have it. Um, and you could sort of look at that as like a theological consideration. But as you noted, uh, and I feel like a lot of your book uh, really helps us think through those historical questions, right? So you bring all of that to the fore. Okay, how exactly, what are the mechanics of this process? Um, and that's, you know, it's one of those things that's the hardest part to me and maybe the hardest part about like my even my own academic journey um, is this kind of... Of balancing out, okay, when am I asking a more explicitly historical question? And when am I really trying to figure out a deeper theological question? Um, and, and I think those things could be uh, uh, easily confused. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the canon is an interesting subject in so many ways. And one thing I find fascinating about it, and why nobody has all the answers, and is because it, it kind of is at the at the center of so many disciplines, it intersects theology, biblical studies, history. I mean, all of these relate. You can't really understand the canon without understanding church history, or you can't, it's hard to, to study the subject of canon without getting to, into historical issues like the, the background of the individual writings or how works were composed. And also there's a theological dimension to this as well, right? You can't really think about the concept of canon without thinking about the theological nature of the text. So these, I mean, these are inherently theological works. And if they do have authority, that's a theological question, not just a historical question. So you really can't just focus on one aspect of that as, as much as we often want to do that, right? Some, some are more comfortable focusing on the history, some more on the theology. Uh, but, but really, they all play a, an important role in this. And and I would say that's also a reason why there's so much confusion is because we have theological questions. We also have historical questions. And, uh, you know, my book tried to shed some light on, I don't know if I answered all the, the questions, but I at least hope that I, I generated some questions. And sometimes the questions that we ask, I think, are more important than the answers we're looking for. And so I'm, I'm at least hoping that we start to uh, go down the right track and, uh, uh, kind of like a dog going through the woods on a hunt, right? We we are on the right scent now, and we're we're starting to think more about historical questions that we should be thinking about, but also not divorcing history from theology. I mean, we want to do that with the doctrine of Christ, right? We right. Wouldn't, we wouldn't just focus on well, some have, right? We know that from our study of the last uh, you know yeah. biblical scholarship in the last couple hundred years. There's been some who said, well, you know, we needed to divorce the Christ of faith from you know the Jesus of history. We just need to focus on historical matters. Others have said, no, let's just focus on, you know, the theology of the Gospels and leave the history to kind of go its own way. And we'll neglect that. And we've, we've seen that hasn't gone very well and yeah. it, uh, led to a lot of dead ends. Uh, so just like we when we study Christology, we need to account for the nature of Jesus. What are his attributes? What do we know about 
who he is as a person, but we also want to look into his background. And right. you know, he was born in a very typical Jewish village in the first century. What was life like for him? And what were some of the ways that the Jews thought about, you know, eschatological uh, matters? And how did they believe God was going to fulfill his promise? And what what were their expectations about a Messiah? And, you know, how, right. were they, how did they believe they were to relate to the law? And, you know, things like that. Uh, so those are historical questions that we'd want to know to be able to fit Jesus into his times. And so I would say canon is, is similar, right? There's, there's theological issues, historical issues, and I've tried to kind of get into a lot of those uh, in the book. And I'll let readers decide, you know, wh whether or not they're convinced by my conclusions. But I at least want us to get going down the right road on this. Well, and one of the things that I appreciated about your book is you sort of it is it feels like it feels like I'm reading with a teacher who is like helping me like, OK, well, if you consider this, then this is going to result from that. Um, but if you consider this perspective, uh, this is one of the things that you have to take into consideration, uh, which is, you know, that's kind of the the kind of the mentality or the mode uh, that I often have uh, when I'm in the classroom is I'm not trying at, at least at first to like give this is the definitive way that you think about it and all other of them are wrong um it's like hey okay if you if you make this move uh then just recognize that some other things are going to result um and and that's kind of how you walk through each one of these things i feel like is is kind of that uh, much more like a teacher well that's that's good to hear you know uh sometimes we're afraid that when we write that we're overcomplicating something uh because ken as i said it's an inherently complex subject and there's so many rabbit trails we could go down and uh, so many obstacles that we could easily trip over. Uh, but what I'm hoping for is that we're at least able to, in this book, look at key issues that may be misunderstood or, or maybe even overlooked. And as we start to focus on the right things, I hope that our, our kind of vision becomes a little more clear um, as we start to think through maybe the process that took place, but also theologically, what separates these writings from other writings in antiquity and other yeah. Christian literature? And so I'm trying just to focus on those major questions that we should be focusing on and, yeah. and uh, not to uh, over, oversimplify as well, because we could easily do that. Yeah, um, We could easily say, well, you know, inspiration is something we should affirm and uh, therefore we can neglect all these historical, I don't want to do that. I want to look at those historical issues while at the same time thinking about the implications of uh, our conclusions as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking is you were just sort of la laying out your thesis a little bit. And I kept coming back to one thing that I encountered more in grad school was um, uh, Gotthold Lessing's uh, Ugly Broad Ditch. Um, and, and, and so this is this thing that he sort of uses to explain like the difficulties of the Bible as historical text. Uh, and, and so it's occasional, it's uh, particular, it's, you know, part of a time and place. Um, and, and it's only part of that time of place in some respects. Uh, but it's also, uh, well, the question would be then how does it convey? And this is, I don't know if Lessing really solved the problem, but Lessing's question would be, Okay, so how does a particular text in a specific uh, time and place, how does it then communicate uh, universal truths? Um, and so what what does that mean for the Christian scriptures uh, to be in so many ways um, very uh, – I mean it's – so it's a useful historical text and these sorts of things. It's not just uh, – it didn't just fall from the sky um, as timeless truths. Um, and, and so that sort of – that always raises problems. And I think you know you brought up uh, Christology, um, and, but, but as you say, you know, it's much like the canon here. You're, you're always going to be kind of pushing in both of those directions. Um, like we, we – you know, especially as a person of faith, uh, you know, we're going to say uh, – especially – you know, Christian faith, uh, we're going to say that the scripture does convey something of the revelation of God, um, but it's com communicated in historical circumstance uh, as well. And that's a that's a really difficult thing to hold uh, in tension. And it can be easy, as you say, to just say, all right, fine, I'm going to run away and just do the history um, and because history has, you know, these other corollaries and yada, yada, yada. Or uh, you want to go pure sort of analytical uh, and pure kind of abstract uh, because you don't want to get dirty uh, with the messiness of history. 
Yeah, well said. And a lot of those issues you raised are not just new issues that have all of a sudden come to the forefront and we're now just talking about it. Actually, all the way back in the early church, they were discussing these mm -hmm. things, right? So how do you have a letter that's addressed to, say, Thessalonica? Why is that relevant to me? You know, right. you might ask that if you're in the second century in another town. Yeah. And so how do we account for the occasional nature of these writings, but also affirm that they're universal? Yeah. And uh, so that's been a challenge that we've had for a number of centuries, going all the way back to the early church. They were debating this even. And uh, it's interesting to see how they work through these issues in early Christianity, uh, maybe a little different than we're working through today. Today, I think maybe we have the opposite problem. We kind of view them as they're universal and we forget the particular element, right? That, you know, God just wrote this directly to me kind of thing. And yeah. uh, well, in fact, he actually wrote them to a specific audience in a specific place. And we need to know something about these people and the issues that were being addressed. So I would say one of the unique aspects of scripture it is able to hold two attributes, right? It's occasional, but it's also universal. Yeah. And so to properly understand scripture, I would argue, uh, you need to, first of all, ask what prompted the author to compose this in the first place? They didn't just decide like we might today, you know, we have a good book idea and we're going to, you know, advertise it and, you know, publish it. And, you know, maybe a general audience would appreciate this, but they started off with some kind of problem or concern and uh, they wanted to address those issues. So Paul is going to address the Romans or the Ephesians or the Corinthians for specific reasons. Mm -hmm. And so part of our job as interpreters then, as readers of the text, is, just, is to discern what actually prompted the author's stride in the first place. And then as a, kind of a, a I would say, a, a secondary step, but an important step is to consider, okay, what are the universal truths that Paul presents or the authors present there? And uh, so, again, I would say scripture is unique because it's occasional. It's written in real places and real times by real people. But it also contains spiritual truths that are just as relevant today as they were 2000 years ago. Yeah. And whenever we focus on just the universal elements at the exclusion of the historical or vice versa, we, we focus on the historical at the exclusion of the universal. I, I would say we get into trouble. Yeah. So we need to really make sure we we pay careful attention to both of those elements. Yeah, and, and sort of uh, as I'm thinking about this almost maybe apologetically or something, you know, I can hear like my sometimes my my undergrad students are a little skeptical at, at St. Louis University uh, of some of these sorts of things. And, you know, they're, you know, well, why would why would God communicate in such a particular circumstance? Um, and uh, I just think of well, and sometimes I have them read Mere Christianity from uh, C.S. Lewis, and he has that line about it has the the queer ring about it that true things do. Um, and, wow. you know, using queer, obviously, in an ancient, uh, or excuse me, not ancient, in an, an old English way of speaking, yeah. uh, right. has that that oddity uh, mm -hmm. about um, true things, right? Something that's true, it's, you know, true things are never just so totally simple um, that there would be, you know, but the, also they're not so complex that nobody could understand that, but they're just, you know, just sort of uh, just sticky enough uh, to make you really want to ponder it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it is, it is that hard thing about particularity. And, you know, at first I, I, I think, you know, part of me, like, you know, wants to go to that universal, uh, but, but I like the particular because that's, what's compelling. Um, you know, it's a, it's a story for a reason. It's a narrative narrative for yeah. a reason and yeah. it's hard to tell a universal story without any particulars exactly um, and yeah. so you, you know you just uh well you no know, i could give you the the outlines of what makes a plot a plot but that's not compelling um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a story um yeah. and uh you know i think sometimes i think uh yeah our storytelling is well, anyway, that th that's my no. criticism of modern storytelling. But um, <laughs> but having that, you know, you don't want just like an outline of a plot. You want to get to know a character. Sure. Um, and and so, yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we could, you know, fall into the trap of thinking that the particulars of our situation are different than maybe in the first century. You might be tempted yeah. to think, well, you know, we're not dealing with this or that issue like they were in Corinth. Therefore... You know, I don't really need to read First and Second Corinthians, but on the other hand, uh, if you realize that Paul is going to actually emphasize spiritual truths that are universal, then you'll know that yeah, the situation may be different for you than those in Corinth, but uh, there are actually some spiritual truths here, some instruction that remains relevant to the church, right? So yeah. our situations may change, but that truth continues. 
But also you would you would not want to make the mistake of ignoring the original situation in Corinth because then that might uh, confuse you on on the other side of things, which is the the way that Paul treated it. You might be confused as to why he addressed situations the way he did or why he laid out certain principles. And so I would say the more we can learn about the original context, uh, the better equipped we'll be, the better informed we'll be as readers today. Yeah. Well, and so um, to kind of uh, move the conversation forward a little bit, um, one of the things that you, you know, you just used the idea of Paul there, uh, but we have Peter, we have uh, the the gospel writers, uh, you know, some of whom have uh, very obvious connections to the uh, disciples, some of them whom are writing sort of in the disciples' name. Um, but what, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the idea of apostolic authority? What does, what does that mean? Why is that an important consideration, right? So you're rooting, we're rooting, you know, one of the questions about canon uh, mm-hmm. always comes back to uh, the authority. So who wrote it and why does that kind of uh, matter for uh, the, the consideration about whether or not something would be considered scripture? Yeah, excellent question. So many ways I could go with that, but I'll try yeah. to be uh, concise here. But if we look at early Christian testimony, we find that apostolic authority was crucial. And that was often at the center of debates over whether or not certain works should be accepted. It wasn't the only factor, but it was the most important factor. And so we don't have any examples, right, of a text that was widely considered to be written outside the apostolic community that was still embraced by Christians. When there was dispute, it it was whether or not it, it could actually go back to an apostle. So if there was dispute about Hebrews, for example, or maybe, you know, Second Peter or something, the, the primary uh, matter of discussion was whether or not it was actually apostolic. That is, whether it could actually be attributed to one of the apostles in the first century. And other issues tended to be related to that. So even if they were to discuss, say, uh, the uh, use of a writing or the theology of a writing, that was not something that was entirely disconnected from apostolic authority, because it's understood if if a work was written by an apostle, then it would be orthodox, it would be relevant, it would be of use to the church. So all these uh, attributes were connected in one way or another to apostolicity. But there's a huge, a, a very clear connection, I would say, between uh, inspiration and apostolic authorship. Uh-huh. And uh, so we need to think too, about just how they use that language, because it's used differently today. Oftentimes today, for example, we might say that, well, this this practice is apostolic. We might say the Lord's Supper, communion, it's an apostolic practice, uh, because it goes back to the, the practices that were, uh, that could derive from the apostles or practiced by the apostles. Or we might say a certain doctrine is apostolic. We might say the resurrection is apostolic, because it was something that was proclaimed by Peter and John and, you know, the, all the apostles. And that's that's certainly a legitimate way to use the term, uh, but there's also another dimension to this that I think is often overlooked, and that would be uh, the historical issue of apostolic authorship. So they actually placed a great emphasis on this, and sometimes I think we're tempted to overlook that or to think maybe they didn't care about authorship for a couple of reasons. One is there are several writings in the New Testament that some scholars today believe were not written by apostles. And so when people hear that, when they hear, well, maybe the pastoral epistles or Second uh, Peter or something was not, or maybe even James, if these were not written by the individuals that are there in the text, right, the traditional authors, then maybe the early church actually didn't care about authors so much if, if they let these works in, right? Well, the problem with that is they actually did carefully vet these works to make sure they go back to apostles. So that's, that's one issue. Uh, then another issue is is the idea that uh, presented in much scholarship today that apostolicity is something that can be disconnected from authorship. Mm-hmm. But in the early church, they always made the connection. But here's the kind of confusing part about it. Or maybe this is, this is the element that will give us clarity, right? Uh, they often understood the apostolic community in a broader sense than maybe we do today. Mm. And that's that's kind of a key point here. Uh, because a lot of times people will go to the Gospels, for example, and they'll say, wait a minute, it, this one's written by Mark, this one's written by Luke, and I've read the Gospels, I've read the list of the 12, and I don't <laughs> see Mark's name there, I don't see Luke's name there. So the church affirmed these as apostolic, but these were clearly not of the 12. 
or they might even do the same thing with Paul because he was not of the 12, even though, of course, he was uh, commissioned by Christ directly on the, as we read multiple places. Uh, so I think because we have so-called non-apostles, right, individuals that we would not think of directly as apostles who were responsible for the composition of these writings, then we might think that apostolic authorship is maybe not important, or maybe that's not how we should use the term. But what I find is that they understood apostolic authorship a little more broadly, the community a little more broadly than we do. In fact, if you go to places like Acts 14, you find references to people like Barnabas as apostles there. So it seems that uh, we have the 12, we have Paul, and my understanding is that we have many individuals who work side by side with the apostles. Paul is not a lone ranger who's out there, you know, uh, going to one city after another by himself. He works with a team. And people like Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, Silas, list could go on and on. These individuals work directly with Paul. They're part of his ministry. Paul will often send out individuals to different cities to learn more about them, uh, to get an update about their situation, to instruct them, to encourage them, to edify them. And they're going to often come back to Paul with reports, as we talked about earlier uh, in our discussion. And so many individuals are actually part of Paul's ministry or part of the apostles' ministry. And so they're part of this broader apostolic community. Mm -hmm. And so what we don't have in scripture then are works that were written by individuals who were somehow separate from that community. Yeah. So individuals in the early second century who had no connection to the 12 or no connection to Paul. Every single one of the writings in the New Testament were written by either the 12, by Paul, or individuals who were right there in the middle of the, their ministries of these apostles. They worked side by side with them. Yeah. So it could be apostolic in that sense. That's still a historical way of thinking about it because they're part of that initial apostolic community, not individuals who are you know, self-proclaimed apostles down the road somewhere. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that has, you know, uh, I, I mentioned in, in some of the stuff when we were writing uh, writing to each other was this idea of the the Latin word uh, that that comes up in Tertullian. Someone you cite in the book is auctor, uh, and and it which is interesting, right? So it's the root of our English word for author, um, mm. as well as our root for authority. Um, and you know, we don't uh, we don't necessarily think that every author is an authority um, in English anymore. Um, but in Latin, you would, right? You would say that, you know, those are essentially connected. If you're an author, uh, it's typically because you have a kind of authority. Um, and especially when I think when we think about this idea of, you know, going back to the, the apostolic authority, um, the apostolic author, um, it is because they have an authority. But it, it, it's, it's interesting in, in the ways in which it sort of bends our normal notions for this, because we also think of an author like, you know, you have this book that we're taught, we're discussing. Uh, I have a book that's supposed to come out in November. Uh, but it won't come out um, until November. Um, and I will have the final say over the last little bits um, and it will be done. It will be complete. And it's supposed to be mine in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but in this case, there isn't the same like, okay, there's a specific date and we're going to wait and no, you know, it's not going to go public uh, until no, you know, it, but there's not that same kind of idea. So the, the text even is a little bit more fluid um, in the, in the way that it's being, you know, written down by a scribe, uh, maybe in, you know, maybe in some ways interpreted maybe by the carrier um, of the letter. Um, I know Augustine's correspondence better than uh, I'm, so by training, I'm a patristic scholar. So that's kind of more my, my book's about Augustine. Um, so that's more oh, what, nice. Great. That's, yeah. that's what I know better. Uh, but I know that he had these problems where, you know, well, OK, there was there's some interpretation going on with his letter carrier uh, that uh. maybe was confusing matters. Um, and and so there's you know, there's like lots of different things that kind of get in the way. Uh, some of I think it's some of day Trin gets out before he's ready for it to get out um, and and people are up upset uh you know because like the book has kind of been released as it were um and he wasn't ready but like so the idea of like you know the text isn't a fixed thing uh in the mind of the of the author yeah very good so a lot of different uh kind of things you mentioned there um so i'll, I'll do my best to kind of uh go right to the center of, of that but uh, yeah when it comes to authority i, I mentioned people like barnabas and Mark and Luke, I should have mentioned Mark and Luke first because they're authors 
Yeah. Uh, it was understood that they have authority because of their connection to authoritative figures. Right. It wasn't as though Mark and Luke are just authoritative, uh, you know, in and of themselves. you know, had this intrinsic authority, but they were connected to the apostles. And I'm kind of working through this backwards, but maybe I should go <laughs> the other direction. Someone like Tertullian would argue that, you know, the grace authority would be God, the father, the creator. Yeah. And then what God the Father does is he sends Jesus Christ, who is actually mentioned in Hebrews as our great apostle, which is a fascinating title for Christ that we only find there. <laughs> so Christ is the apostle, the one sent directly from God. He's commissioned by God to proclaim truth, right? He's sent directly from him. So he bears the authority of the one. Uh, he bears his own authority, of course, but he also has the authority of the one who sent him, God the Father. So we have God send Christ, our foremost apostle, Christ then commissioned the 12. He commissioned Paul personally to go out and uh, testify to the resurrection, testify to the, the gospel message. And so the 12 and Paul, we would say they have authority because, not because they are somehow separate ontologically from us or unique ontologically, but they, they have an authority that comes directly from Christ because Christ mm -hmm. commissioned them to go out. And then we have kind of another dimension to the next level, the next tier would be those who serve alongside of the apostles. And so we have someone like Barnabas or Timothy or Mark or Luke who they they serve directly with those who are commissioned by Christ. So they're almost like apostles of the apostles. It's kind of the way to <laughs> kind of the way to think about it. So Tertullian recognizes this and if you could if you understand that that uh, kind of connection between those different tiers there, it'll help you to understand I would say how Tertullian articulates his understanding of scripture and how that's different than, say, Marcion, whom he's, uh, you know, castigating as this heretic, right? So someone like Marcion, who defiles the gospel message and is innovative, you break the link then is what you do. Right. Because now you, you, you break the link where there's the apostolic community, because your writings can't legitimately be described as apostolic anymore because you've just defiled them. Yeah. And so they're your own creation. So if you break the link of the apostles, then you can't really get back to Christ and you can't get back to God. You're now guilty of heresy or idolatry or it, you're responsible for an innovation is what you're responsible for now. Yeah. And so that's why the link is so important. And, and uh, you can't have, in other words, you can't have pure doctrine that goes directly to Christ derives from Christ, is faithful to the, the teaching of Christ with and and break the, the apostolic link as well. Yeah. I have, I, yeah, so, talking about this stuff just generates all kinds of questions. It does. Uh, <laughs> but what, one of them would be like, okay, so I don't, I, I haven't read Boltman in years, but I remember when I was first in my master's program uh, where we talked about Boltman and he would talk about the Johannine community um, and these sorts of things. Does he have in mind what you were talking about? I don't even like I, I mean, I'm so far from does he have in mind this sort of idea of the people working with John or I feel like I, I understood it very differently. Like it was like, yeah. Uh, and but now I'm like, well, could it could he have meant something like what you're describing? I, I don't know. You may not know that. I don't know. It was just something that was pinging in my brain. I'm like, well, this kind of you could use that word. But now yeah, I'm, that, yeah. but that's I feel like that's different from what Boltman, uh, uh, Rudolf Boltman. And for the listeners, Rudolf Boltman was a German New Testament scholar. Um, and he would talk a lot about like, well, we don't know who wrote what, but maybe it came from the community of so and so. Um, and I don't. I was like, I don't actually remember ever parsing exactly what that meant. Yeah, well, they they would use when I say they, I I mean Boltman, and then those who were his students and uh, many of the inheritors of you know his ideas. They, I would say, use those terms in a broader sense. Yeah. So it's not just those who are personal assistants, you know, with Paul or John, but it could just be those who were inspired by his message and sought to carry it on. So this, you'll see this in uh, Pauline studies, for example, someone might say, well, the pastoral epistles were written late first century or early second century by someone who was a, or a group of people who were disciples of the apostle Paul in some sense, they were devotees to Paul yeah. and his idea. So what they did was maybe preserve the writings and they might expand the corpus of writings to include works that they created that were, they believed consistent with Paul's legacy and his own teaching, that kind of thing. So oftentimes when people talk about a school 
mm-hmm. right? Like a Pauline yeah. school or a Johannine school. They they might mean oftentimes they'll mean a subsequent generation yeah. after the death of that individual. You know, the next generation or two, they're they're crafting additional works in their name and yeah. that individual's name that they believe is somehow consistent with uh, their message. their follower, yeah, or their their original leader, whether it's John or Peter or whoever. But what you've been talking about is 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 not quite that loose, right? No, you, no. You want a much tighter bond between uh, the ap- apostolicity, uh, as in having been sent directly by Christ, or someone immediately within the orbit, like as you keep using the the Timothys or the Barnabases or the uh, you know Luke's or you know all yeah. of these people as like they're they're still within that generation, they're still within uh, a much tighter network. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of what what language to use here, but go ahead. You're exactly right. Well, think about uh, the example with Mark. And I I should probably go back and preface this by noting why this is an important subject. It's because many times people will discount the importance of apostolic authorship, again, because, just to reiterate this point, because we have non-apostles, quote unquote, right? Mark and Luke and that type of thing. So they might say, well, what's the difference between Mark and, say, 1st Clement or 2nd Clement or the Ignatian letters. I mean, if, as long as they're orthodox and edifying, that's yeah. all that matters. So what is so unique about these writings? There's different ways you can answer that. But I would say the issue is not exactly the same here. We have actually two different scenarios. I would say, you know, work like uh, the Apostolic Fathers, late first century, second century, those are disconnected from the apostles. And in fact, Ignatius even says that. He, he even emphasizes how his his work was disconnected from the apostles, right? Uh, he says, I'm nothing but a slave. And, you know, but these, these are apostles who wrote these works over here. Uh, but to go back to Mark as an example, Mark, very close relationships. He's not just someone in a community, right? Uh, 30, 40 years later, this is someone who, well, the term the early church used was hermeneutes. Mm-hmm. He was the hermeneutes of Peter. Mm-hmm. So this is not just, you know, one obscure reference. This is something we find in a lot of early Christian testimony that, Mark was the interpreter, the hermeneutes of of, uh, Peter. So he's actually responsible for composing a written document that is based on Peter's eyewitness testimony of Christ. So it it actually goes back to Peter, but you have someone who is a close companion of the apostles, not someone who's a second or third or fourth century writer. You have a a right-hand assistant of an apostle who's writing his work under the influence of the apostle at the direction of an apostle then. So it's all based on eyewitness testimony of an apostle rather than just someone's, uh, you know, ingenuity many years later, or someone who is just simply taking traditions that passed down from generation to generation. It actually goes right back to the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, that's very helpful. Um, It yeah, it just also makes me think about uh, this book by Brad East about the relationship between church and 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 book. And I was just thinking, like, you know, uh, I like this notion of apost- apostolicity uh, rooting one in Christ, uh, because you know, and and when we think about, you know, it, it's an interesting uh, phrase that we use, "Word of God," right? Um, and so, "Word of God," in some, as Bart pointed out, "Word of God" has kind of this threefold sense, um, but but it's always rooted in Christ. So I like, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. It, it fits well to think about apost- apostolicity as being rooted in who Christ sends, um, yeah, as Christ yeah. as the Word uh, sends out the Word, um, and you know it, it. It I don't. It has a nice kind of uh, tie in uh, to this as the basis, you know. And then the pre and then the fight for Bart. Bart talks about the threefold word for. I'm sure you know this, but for the the listeners, right? So the final one would be preaching. And so what is preaching? Uh, well, preaching is sort of the next step. Um, past uh, Christ uh, sending his word into the world through uh, the apostles and then mm-hmm. that word being further sent out uh, by the preacher um, and obviously deriv- and, and in the right way further derivative um, not the same as Christ himself or not the same as the apostles yeah and you see that language even in the early church don't you yeah. it's not just Bart you know years later yeah. it's you, even in the early church you see a lot of church fathers refer to scripture uh, in that way and the importance of of proclamation. There's yeah. a heavy emphasis on that. And for them, it goes back to Christ as yeah. well. So yeah, John Bear has has some good stuff on uh, the yeah, the proclamation of of the gospel and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Very good. 
Um, awesome. Uh, okay, this is my uh, uh, change gears question uh, that can be related to the book. It doesn't have to be. But I always ask my guests, uh, what is one thing that you once thought was true and now think is false? Uh, or one thing that you think is false but now think is true? And and I like this question because sometimes it shows like what happens when you're doing research uh, for a book like this. Like Sometimes you find out things that you, you just, you know, well, when I was going in, I thought one thing, but by the time I was done, I realized something else. Uh, but it also can just sort of generally be in the life of a, of a scholar or a theologian. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you're pursuing truth and wherever it is to be found. Um, so I'm always curious, uh, how that, what that process looks like for people. Yeah. Good question. I'm not trying to dodge your question entirely, <laughs> but I would say maybe the biggest surprise, the main surprise mm. for me is, is not just so much what I found in my research on a certain subject, but really I I've been surprised by the way most readers think about these subjects. Mm. Sometimes we just kind of assume that everybody thinks like we do uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, something might seem obvious to us, but maybe others have a different opinion. I, of course I know there's different opinions out there, but I, I guess I, I was surprised by the different notions people have about the implications of authorship. Mm. I was surprised by that. And the more I talk to individuals, the more I see that there's there's a general, I would say, ambivalence towards the subject of authorship. A lot of people don't understand why it's important. Mm. And I think there's different reasons for that. And I did once I started to see this, it, it kind of led to my discussion in the the last couple chapters of the book where I get into authority. Um, so I kind of raise my my uh, arguments against these uh, kind of initial premises that you know people might have, or, or these, these certain mindsets that people might have. And I think that uh, for a lot of people, if if they hear constantly that there's non-apostolic works in the New Testament, right? That we have works like the pastoral epistles or second Peter that were not written by the individuals that are ascribed in the text. If, if they think, well, we don't know who wrote this, or they think that maybe we even have uh, someone else in the second century writing these, then I think it's a natural conclusion for them is to say, well, authorship really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And instead of a crisis taking place where they say, well, you know, I guess the, the entire New Testament is not authoritative because it doesn't actually go back to the apostles. Rather than going down that road, making that conclusion, they actually make a very different uh, conclusion in many cases. And they'll say something like, well, uh, but it's God's word. It's inspired in his providence. He's given us these texts. So even if a work like Second Peter is actually not written by Peter, then we can still hold that it's authoritative today. So in mm. other words, authorship just doesn't mean anything anymore. It's it's inconsequential entirely. So I guess I was just surprised uh, because I, I always thought that, you know, maybe you have some historical critical scholars out there who are going to just view these as ancient documents, right? So they're not going to hold inspiration. So authorship really doesn't matter except for historical reasons. But I've noticed that in the evangelical world, in the more conservative world, there's a lot of people who are, I, I would say, confused on this, or maybe they're, they haven't thought through it clearly enough, at least. Yeah. And uh, they haven't thought about the implications of authorship very much. And they've greatly discounted its importance. Yeah. But when we go back to the early church, as we mentioned, that was actually a crucial subject. Yeah. Well, and one thing, I, I, I feel like I could... Uh step on some toes with this question and I don't mean to I'm merely just thinking out the implications but you know sometimes you hear this phrase verbal plenary inspiration uh and it's you know it's uh, when you start talking about uh how kind of negotiated a text was uh it starts to make you wonder well, what what exactly do you mean? I mean, you talk a lot about autographs. Like, this is something in the Chicago statement is like mm-hmm. this idea of autographs, um, but I, and which also raises sort of problems, as you as you note in the book. Um, but yeah, I was also just thinking about like, well, what what do you actually mean if we say that God by words spoke? you know, through Paul to write something down, uh, you know, it is, it's, I start to, uh, and, and again, I'm, I, I don't mean to be, um, uh, I don't know, impious or, or something or disrespectful, but it starts like, it's like, well, this feels like a really modern way to frame this. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, and it's not wrong for modern people to ask modern questions, uh, but it's just hard then to say, okay, well, well, what does it, uh, you know, how does that help us to understand an ancient text? 
Exactly. Yeah. And there, we have to have some humility here and we don't want to be too specific on when we think about inspiration, for example, right? Yeah. Um, the specific mode that took place, how exactly God through his spirit inspired men to write. Yeah. Uh, there is a mystery there. We don't have a full articulation of the process. We yeah. know how writings were composed. I talk about that, but how inspiration, you know, actually works. You know, I think about second Peter one, Mm-hmm. And it talks about how there's no prophecy of, a, you know, that's a private interpretation, but it says that God through humans spoke, right? As men spoke, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, I wish, you know, we would have had a little more information there on exactly <laughs> what carried along means. Yeah. You know, what, what do exactly we mean by that? So it's not exactly spelled out very clearly in scripture, what carried on by the spirit means, but we do know that that took place, right? Even if we're, we have a very loose understanding of, of exactly the process there. Uh, I, you mentioned the Chicago statement. I think if I remember the Chicago statement says something along those lines, like there's a mystery to the exact mm. mechanism or mode that uh, led to inspiration. So it's, we can't be too specific. We, but again, we don't have to fully understand something to accept it, do we? So yeah, I would, I would uh, caution us there. If we don't fully understand exactly how something played out, that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. Just like we don't fully understand, you know, the mystery of the incarnation or the Trinity or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's fair. That's fair enough. It, and, uh, and like I said, I, I really do want, <laughs> I do want to tread carefully, but it, it's hard. Uh, so the, you know, it's yeah. a, it's a weird thing. Uh, and, and maybe this is part of even, uh, for me, like I have like, I have a very eclectic, uh, educational background. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Um, because it means like I've, <laughs> I like, I was raised in a very conservative environment with kind of these things as just a given. And then I, I did my master's at Princeton seminary, which went, came hard from the historical critical sure. uh, angle. And part of the reason I did patristics for my PhD was because I was like, I've got to, I, I, I don't want to live in the pure historical world world of a German critical scholarship of the 18th and 19th century or whatever. Like that was just dead to me and lifeless. Yeah. Um, and so I liked going back to the patristic sources uh, because you you definitely felt like this is a divine text. Um, and and so like, you know, when, when I would read along with Augustine or, uh, you know, Ambrose or whoever, I'm like, yeah, you and I, we share this conviction about how God is speaking here, mm-hmm. um, even if I don't you know, uh, uh, even if I don't have a very, you know, explicit historical way to view, you know, what was going on behind the text. Um, so I, I felt sort of solace in reading with the patristic sources, um, cause I didn't have to have all the very modern answers, uh, to these problems. I, well, they just, they were happy to say inspiration and talk about it being a divine text. And I'm like, yeah. good, let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. And I think we need to revive that. And, uh, yeah, not just discount it and uh, write it off, you know, entirely and say, well, we're sophisticated now in the 21st century. Uh, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice uh, when we discount any possibility of inspiration and say, well, these are just ancient documents. Yeah. Right? And that's that's it. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's always, it always I mean, just as a final coda on that, it always surprises mm-hmm. me that, uh, you know, one of the best textual critics in the history of the church is origin. Um, you you know, and so like one of these people that gets kind of chastised for being too allegorical and, you know, all these other things. I mean, uh, you know, he was, he was a very good, uh, textual scholar. Um, all right. So, um, I, you know, I'm realizing as I'm looking through some of these questions, uh, well, one one question I put there was like you really push hard on this idea of uh, authority towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. I was kind of curious what what made you you know as far as you're laying out the text, why you wait uh, till the end. Like that was that like to me that was the bit that I really wanted to get to, uh-huh. uh, and, and I was like, okay, so why is that at the end and not at the beginning? Like why wouldn't you? Why just curious? Like as you were thinking through your own writing process. You you kind of left your big uh, reveal. Like maybe that's it. You just left your reveal to the end. I don't. Yeah, good uh, question here. So my original idea when I wrote this book was only to write on these historical misperceptions that people have about Kant. So it was, it was actually going to address just the issues in the first two units, not all three, but just the first two units. So uh-huh. an overview of the canonical process, a discussion of. Uh, composition like you see in the early chapters there. So that was the original focus of the book. 
And the publisher said, you know, it would be nice once they looked over the proposal, they said, you know, it would be actually very good if you would discuss maybe in a preface or an introductory chapter or maybe even a conclusion chapter, but maybe at least have something in the book about the idea of inspiration. Yeah. Right, the concept of inspiration, how all this uh, relates to your work. So I said, okay, that's fair enough. You know, um, I, I originally, again, didn't want to treat the theological issues. I wanted to focus, not that I wanted to avoid it. I just wanted to focus on historical issues. Um, so they said, well, let's, let's see if we can work that in there somehow, inspiration. So I said, okay. And so I started to work on these, uh, work on this subject. And eventually I just said, you know, this is, I just need to include two chapters on this uh, <laughs> rather than just, you know, try to cover this in a page or two in an introduction or conclusion. This is something that I think would tie the book together at the end and give it, uh, you know, a great, uh, I, I think give it a little more um, kind of broaden the scope a bit and kind of complete it. I think it, I think it would help for that. So that's why I decided to write those last two chapters. And uh, I think the sequence, I, I kind of just followed my original sequence. And so yeah. it was going to start with composition and then lead to formation. So uh -huh. the first couple chapters, you know, three chapters, how were works composed, and then go to the canonical process that is, you know, post composition. Talk about that because that's the, the next uh, part in the chronological sequence. And then I decided, well, let's just put the you know, subject of authority at the end because it's kind of a why does it matter to us today kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, so I, I kind of went with that progression. I probably could have put that at the beginning too. I think it could have worked either way, but I was just kind of going from, I was thinking more of a chronological sequence. So we go from yeah. composition to formation to modern relevance. It's kind of the, the way I was thinking through it. Yeah. No, that's well, that's pre that's pretty interesting. Yeah, because I'm with your editors. Because I was like, oh yeah, okay, this helps me see that you know uh, the fullness of the of the story here. Uh, yeah. And and so I I I think uh, I think it's a good chapter. I think it's a, it helps helps round it out because yeah, for me, if I think about canon, I'm always uh, like I, as as I've said, I'm thinking about both of the historical question and the kind of theological question. Um, yeah. So. And uh, for me, you know, the theological issues are actually much more difficult yeah. to write than the historical issues oh and, yeah <laughs> i mean something can be very obscure historically and it takes a lot of work to dig into it but it might be a little more straightforward in the end right yeah like if i were writing about jesus it would be a lot easier to describe you know the archaeology of first century galilee even though it would require a lot of well, I was going to say digging to use a bad pun, but yeah, it would require a lot of investigation, but yeah. that's, that's a little more straightforward, isn't it? Than discussing, you know, the incarnation or, you know, the, the resurrection of Christ, or those are very difficult subjects. Uh, the theological subjects can often be very intimidating, very, very difficult. And, and so I actually spent more time writing the theology chapters than any of the other chapters. I, uh, I, I mean, talk about just all the nuance that has to go into something like that. It has to be very carefully presented. And so I, it took a lot yeah. of time to get my mind around how to present that, uh, those yeah. chapters. But I'm, I'm thankful that they made that suggestion because I think, as you said, it rounded off the book in a, in a, in a good way and uh, added a lot of uh, variety to it. And of course, it's, it's, essential, it's an essential subject anyway. So I'm glad I was able to, to work that in there. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and even just to echo that, I in my dissertation, that's like kind of the basis for this book. I like I like doing historical theology or patristics because I can also say, look, I'm just telling you what Augustine said. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not putting my like you know two cents in here. Um, I mean, I you do you inevitably do, but like it's it's a lot safer to just say, well, look, hey, I'm this is just what this person said. Um, uh, you know, yeah. To uh, go back to uh, Bart, I think yeah. he actually says something to that exact effect in his uh, in the introduction to his Romans commentary, right? Yeah. He, he he's kind of responding to his critics. Yeah. And his critics say, "Oh, your Romans commentary is just theological. It's yeah. it's not as detailed as uh, you know, like these uh, exegetical commentaries that really get into those historical critical issues." And he says, "No, it's actually the opposite." Yeah. I'm not uh, neglecting that, he claims. You can debate whether or not he did neglect. But he's going to say, you know, I actually went a step beyond what you're doing. I'm not just talking about the history. I'm talking about the history, but also its implications today and the meaning of the text today. And 
that's uh, that can often be very difficult, much more difficult than just you know analyzing histor- historical uh, subjects. Yeah. Well, uh, we are brushing right up on an hour here. Uh, I appreciate so much uh, the time that you've given. Um, and just for the listeners, um, you know, I, as always, it, what is a 250-some-odd-page book, um, I – I can only ask so many questions. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, A lot of stuff about, uh, you know, misperceptions about uh, Constantine's role and, um, you know, some other things like that, which I deal with all the time uh, in, in, in my introduction to theology classes. If someone has any idea about the the history of the canon, which is not often, uh, uh, but uh, but if they do, they've read Dan Brown and they want to tell mm-hmm. me about what what Constantine did or whatever, yeah, and I'm right. like, ah. <laughs> so, so uh, suffice it to say that you lay a lot of that stuff to rest. Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff in the book. I did want to ask just one thing that maybe I missed or uh, maybe something that's just kind of a different um, angle on this. But one thing that like when I when I think about the story of the canon, I often think about what texts were read liturgically in the communities. Um, and I don't remember you addressing that so much, but maybe I just missed it. Uh, but it seems like that's an important part of the question, right? It's not just apost- or for me, you know, apostolic authority may be uh, a critical linchpin, uh, but there's also this reality that like, well, you know, these are the books that were read uh, in the communities. That doesn't mean that there, you know, as Eusebius says, that doesn't mean that there aren't other beneficial books, but these are just not what the church reads. Um, and that's, and that plays, a, to me, that plays another, you know, uh, uh, an important part in this whole uh, process is like some of this is, you know, it, it's like a lot of times people will say, well, how do we know what books went in and what they were thinking? And they weren't even thinking about it as you, you know, as you point out, like, it's not like, there's not like a treatise. Here's how mm-hmm. we chose the Bible. Um, right, right. <laughs> it, it, it's sort of like, well, these are, this is just as we gather in a community, these are the things that we read um, on, on the Sabbath um, and in the, in the, in the literature, Energy. Um, so I don't, is that something that, uh, you know, do I, do I have that wrong? I don't know. I care to respond to that. I like what you said there. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't as though we have a pivotal event somewhere, maybe in the fourth century where the church just had a moment of crisis and they decided, you know, we need to decide what is scripture. And they all got together and somehow all reached a consensus on these 27, and then went out and proclaimed it in the marketplace. And everybody started to read these 27 books. What, what's the name of this one again? Oh, where do I find this? And all of a sudden, everybody starts to read these 27 that they weren't reading before. Yeah. Um, but no, what we find is that these 27 books were the books that they were most often using in Christian worship context. And and probably the one who's written the most on this would be, uh, it's unfortunately not, uh, a lot of his work is not translated into English, but Theodore Zahn, the, the German um, scholar. He wrote quite a bit about this uh, a long time ago on just the early use of scripture in Christian worship. And we know that that took place just from so many different sources. But when we get to the fourth century, we start to see these canonical lists that become mm-hmm. associated with these uh, with these different councils and synods and things. And these were not, contrary to common belief, these were not dictates where they said, okay, these are what you should start to read Instead, they what they do is they reveal the consensus on what was being read. Yeah, and we also find that a key concern was what should be read in public worship. Yeah, so it's not just as simple as well. If these works are not to be read in public worship, then th- then we should view them as heretical or suspect in some way. So, like Eusebius will will recognize certain works as being edifying works, but not apostolic. That goes you know back to the apostles, like I said. So yeah they didn't see everything quite as black and white as maybe we do today. Uh, they understood that there's a lot of Christian works out there, a lot of writings that may have benefit in one way or another, might be useful in one uh, for one reason or another, and uh, Christians can benefit from them, but it is only those apostolic works that should be recognized as our authority. And so those were the works that were used in, in uh, widely in Christian worship. And so if you go to a typical New Testament canon introduction, you'll typically see a section or a chapter in there on what's called the criteria of canonicity. And they'll, yeah. <laughs> or sometimes we'll say something like test, right? Yeah. And there's, there's problems with the language, but that's kind of for another discussion. But, you know, you'll see things like apostolicity and Catholicity and orthodoxy that are there. And uh, 
maybe, yeah, when you, when you think about Catholicity, the idea is that these were writings that they didn't just come out of nowhere in the fourth century. These were used in Christian worship and have a long history of, of that type of use. So that, that's different than, say, the non-canonical works that often were sectarian in nature, right? Like these non-canonical gospels that might have been used in a Gnostic community or something. These are sectarian. They're used in isolated places. But the four gospels were used in public worship from a very early time and yeah. uh, used in liturgies and used in public reading, things like that. So kind of correlated with the Old Testament, right? The reading of the law, the prophets, and, and the writings. And uh, we find the gospels start to be read. In public gatherings as well. So there's a long history of use. Yeah. And that actually played quite a important role in the whole process. It was very natural. They didn't need a council in the fourth century to say, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They've already been reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John for a long time, right? That's and, right. In, in the context of the local church. Yep. Excellent. Uh, well, uh, Dr. B uh, Dr. Laird, I appreciate you uh, taking an hour of your time, uh, maybe a little longer. Um, and also for this great, uh, this great book. Um, so I would recommend any of my listeners. Uh, sometimes I interview people who publish and their books are like a hundred dollars. Uh, so it's nice <laughs> to be able to recommend, uh, a very useful book, even for the non-specialist, uh, that gives a lot of the important, uh, ground to be covered in this question of where did the Bible come from essentially? Uh, well, especially the new Testament, yeah. right? So not, don't really deal with the old Testament, but, uh, when are you going to write that book? <laughs> oh, uh, I wish I could give you a date for that, but, uh, we'll see. There's, there's a lot that needs to be said on the old Testament canon, I would say. Yeah. Excellent. So. Well, thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.